0: On this episode, we're talking all about Quentin Tarantino and letting him take us to 1969 Hollywood to live in a time of the golden age. Movie stars, young and old. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Get your popcorn ready.
1: I'm Rick Dalton. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. I'm Sharon Tate.
0: I'm in the movie. That was the best acting I've ever seen. Welcome to our community. Always gonna dig you know? i can all change that. Ah! i love that stuff you know the killing a lot of killing once upon a time in hollywood welcome all you good movies buddies to the popcorn diet a podcast for those who live on a steady diet of movie theater popcorn and other movie snacks as always my name is rick williamson your very best good movie buddy and joining us as usual is our other good movie buddy the canadian machine mr david Melhorn. david how you doing today i'm a little little tired a little tired we saw this you know, uh, we talk about lifestyles sometimes, and I just sometimes can't keep up with your lifestyle, man. You just go, you're out late in all these hours. You're making me see two-hour, 45-minute Quentin Tarantino movies at 10 p.m. at a movie theater with 25 minutes worth of previews. It's tired. I'm an old man. I can't do this much anymore.
1: What can I say? You got to do what you got to do for we, the podcast. That's
0: true. We did. I mean, this has been one of my most anticipated movies of the year anytime a new Tarantino movie comes out I'm pumped about it and 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 obviously you got some of the biggest movie stars in the world in it you're set in a time where a a very romantic time in Hollywood that was somewhat shattered I guess so to speak by uh, the the heinous crimes that happened, the, the Manson family murders, the murders of Sharon Tate and stuff like that. All of this is historical record, and needless to say, I was very excited for this movie. But we don't—I don't, don't think—we have had really an opportunity to talk Tarantino on this podcast. You know, obviously, a big uh, a, a, a big portion of our film life, a big influence on our on our film film. Taste growing up, wouldn't you say? Would you say that he's also added to your uh, uh, con- con- contributed to your film taste as we grew up?
1: Yeah, I mean, he's pretty much. We started watching movies probably that we remember in the early '90s. Right. And we weren't watching. Much, <laughs> we weren't
0: watching Tarantino movies in the no, early '90s. No, even Yeah. That's when he that's was making them.
1: Pretty much when he started. I mean, I think we probably watched. His first three films, right? Well, after they came out, sure,
0: and well before we probably should have seen them,
1: possibly. <laughs> and then probably the first movies we started seeing—I can't remember if I saw them in theater, but were the Kill Bill movies? Sure,
0: I—I I know I definitely saw Kill Bill in theaters because I remember particularly the anime sequence, mm-hmm. and that came out. So let's go through them. Let's go through all nine. Nine or ten. I think this is his this tenth. Is the, this is the ninth. This, this is, is ninth. his ninth. What do we got? We got Reservoir Dogs. 92. Let's go through all of them, right? Reservoir Dogs was the first one, and it sort of... His first two movies really set the standard for like gangster movies moving forward. Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs was the first one. And for all intents and purposes, I know you did a little bit of research. We're doing a little historical, as we tend to do a little historical look back before we get into the new release. But that was his, was that his least quote unquote successful film, would you say, after looking at the numbers? Or was it, it just didn't do that. It wasn't huge.
1: Um, Well, Reservoir Dogs only made it into 61 theaters. So as much as people talk about Reservoir Dogs, it was more of well past it coming out sure. it's sort of more of a cult classic gets thrown around a lot especially with Tarantino movies um, but it was really one that really got its love and respect well after um, its its original appearance in theaters because it only made two million in the box office right. so um, it wasn't exactly a box office uh, <laughs> juggernaut Bo- box from that office, standpoint
0: yeah it, <laughs> it, it, it definitely didn't paved the way to where he eventually would would go into. But two years later, 1994, we get Pulp Fiction. Yep. You know, And looking back, uh, I don't think we ever did Hindsight Awards on 1994, but that's a, a murderer's row year. That was the year, I believe, Forrest Gump won Best Picture. I think in hindsight, many people would give it to Pulp Fiction, although there are plenty of other contenders, sure. Um, but that won him if I'm not mistaken, his first Oscar. That won him his Oscar for screenplay, for screenwriting. And again, paved the way for how how many Tarantino knockoffs came after that, how many boondock saints, how many pool hall junkies, how many suicide kings. Every crime movie was now filled with... Fast-talking wise guys, you know, spouting off philosophical nonsense about life and pop culture and all these kinds of things. And that was one thing, particularly in in the 90s, early 90s, we started seeing independent filmmakers like Tarantino, Kevin Smith start writing dialogue and writing characters and writing movies that talk the way like actual regular people seemingly talk. They talked about movies like Jaws. They talked about Madonna songs and stuff like that. And now they've, they've sort of, you know, and we'll get into the way that characters talk now in Tarantino movies, but now they've kind of risen above, right? So we got Pulp Fiction in 1994. And then we got Jackie Brown, which is one of my favorite Tarantino movies. I think Jackie Brown is a top three Tarantino movie for me in 97. How do you feel about Jackie Brown? Because a lot of people, it, it's kind of the one that never got as much love as I felt that it should have.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough. It, it's not as, I feel like, mass appealing. It's a little bit more, I mean, all of Tarantino's films are for a specific taste. I mean, while I think everybody can appreciate how well done they are, um, and particularly, I think, in the writing um, in all his movies, but I think each movie, you kind of have to fall in line with his taste of of film. And so I think with Jackie Brown, it was just one of those films that, for whatever reason, when it came out, it just didn't get the same publicity. It doesn't have quite the flashy performances have of, of some of his other films with the right you know the lead actors and things like that not that it doesn't have great actors in it but it you look at the other films of Tarantino and you know they're you know yes we still have Samuel L in this and and De Niro's in this and Michael Keaton and Bridget Fonda so I mean it's not that it's without its names but like I think it's just not as memorable of performances some of his other ones
0: sure I I it's definitely and you can see like his odes mm-hmm. in some of these movies. Jackie Brown was clearly his ode to black exploitation obviously Pam Greer and whatnot. But it was also the kind of turning point into where now he's working with people like a Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. Like Robert De Niro's in the new Tarantino movie. That's wild. Yep. Sam Jackson's back, you know, that kind of stuff. A smaller cast, a tighter cast. And that I kind of look at those first three movies as like his crime saga era where you had regular people dealing with you know criminal malfeasance and criminal actions and stuff like that and then he disappeared for what is that six years seven years almost mm-hmm. um really didn't you know he 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 kind of got to do whatever he wanted uh after jackie brown he he and what he wanted was to not really do much of anything he did a little some minor acting here and there. He showed up with uh, um, his good buddy, Robert Rodriguez. He was in like Desperado from dusk till dawn. He's not an insignificant part from dusk till dawn. But then what I feel was like the birth of the modern Tarantino, Mm -hmm. you got kill bill volume one in 2003 and volume two in 2004. I believe he just came out and said that they're one movie. Uh, even though they were released, yeah. In if, parts. If,
1: if you look it up, there's one and two, and then there's down the line, you'll see it listed as like a f- full right. The whole, bloody affair, yeah, the whole they, bloody affair is what they.
0: The whole bloody affair is what is largely considered to be the like the comprised, put together piece together, total version of Kill Bill. So. Mm-hmm depending on how you look at Kill Bill, it's nine movies or ten movies or or wherever we're at now, but that was Tarantino starting to play with genres a little bit more. He got out of crime, and now, very much like this film, very much like some of his most recent films, we started getting a... a, 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 What's the word I'm looking for? Kaleidoscope of genres. So he did deal with crime, obviously, in Kill Bill, but he also dealt with... Um, the samurai movies and the, the 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 Asian influence of him growing up uh, with those types of movies, with the Kurosawa movies and stuff like that. A lot of reverence to Japanese culture, Asian culture. You know the Hattori Hanzo sword, all this type of stuff. He played with animation. There's a whole anime sequence in the film, and then the second movie, I mean second movie, but the second part i really found interesting because they switch gears the second movie is way more western style in my opinion uh do you do you like one over the other kill bill one was obviously the flashier one because it had that trailer the it had the music it had the game of death bruce lee yellow tracksuit it had the sword fight like everybody remembers that one yeah um, but number two's got some really great stuff in it. Do it you value one over the other out of out of the Kill Bill parts? I'd lean a little bit
1: towards probably the first, probably because of just what it did when it came out, and being that it, you know, we hadn't had Tarantino for a long time. Sure. And there's so many iconic and memorable aspects of that first film. But yeah, I don't. I don't it's not a knock on the second one. It's just i lean usually a little bit more towards the first one.
0: Definitely, um, and I, I agree. I, I like some parts of the second one a lot more, um, the, the The punching her way out of her grave and the stuff with Michael Madsen. I really like Michael Madsen uh, in the second one, but the first one is just so iconic. Then again, he t- didn't really take a break, but he did one half of the Grindhouse movies. He did Death Proof, and there was Death Proof and Planet Terror, and at the time... I think Death Proof was considered the lesser of the two. I don't remember. Maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe it was Planet Terror that was considered the lesser of the two because Planet Terror was the zombie, crazy Robert Rodriguez, Nine Cents. And Death Proof was the more killer stuntman Mike, Kurt Russell... But then it is basically like a 15-minute car chase. Yep. It's phenomenal. The stunt work on there, the stuff that Zoe Bell does, and Zoe Bell has been a Tarantino staple for a mm-hmm. long, long time. Mm-hmm. Zoe Bell famously was Uma's stunt double in Kill Bill as well. She's been in every single one of the movies since then. Um, really, really great stuff in Death Proof. And then we get to my personal favorite Tarantino movie, Glorious Bastards. I think Bastards is his masterpiece. And I know they say that at the end of the film. But this was a movie that was sticking around for a long time. He tried to get it make, made for a long time. And there was a lot of different versions of it. Talked on many podcasts. But it is it is my favorite Tarantino movie. It's just, it's a quote machine. It's a scene machine. There isn't a single slow part in the movie. The way that it's broken up into chapters is absolutely brilliant. I love Inglorious Bastards. Um, what about you? Is it is yeah. it on, is it on the favorites list? I know we probably should wait till in, we're like at the in, end of the list. And Glorious
1: is probably my favorite um, as well. It's like you said the performances are so great, the way it's structured is so great. It's when we really at least for me, right. And I think probably for most people when we really get uh, introduced to uh Christoph Christoph
0: mm-hmm. Christoph Waltz who was uh, originally it was supposed to be DiCaprio yeah. as uh, as Hans Landa,
1: and I just don't think it is. Look, DiCaprio could have done a great job at sure. it, but it wouldn't have been as iconic as what no this was not even close. Um, it would have felt like every time DiCaprio is a villain, like even in our next film that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. in Django, like he always feels a tiny bit like cartoony almost a little bit. Like, and
0: one of the things about about *Inglorious Bastards is how great Christoph Waltz is in terms of like language. Like he speaks Mm -hmm. in most of the movie, he's speaking German. Like Mm -hmm. DiCaprio wouldn't have been able to do that convincingly. Maybe, far be it for me to question Leo, but I argue that he wouldn't be able to do that convincingly. But you brought up Django. Django was his most successful film, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: it did uh, 162 million domestic, which again, you may hear that and think that's not that much. And it really isn't, like from a blockbuster standpoint, sure. none of his films are blockbuster movies. Right. Um, also, one of the issues that he always has is that they're all so are. <laughs> yes. It cuts out a pretty large... And they're not like, uh, maybe it's PG-13. Maybe They're all are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's quite a few people of the movie-going audience that can't see it or probably shouldn't be seeing sure. most of his films. Absolutely. Um, but that one, surprisingly, um, out of all of them, and I say that not because it's not great, but... It's, you know, it feels like it's one of the more probably Contra- divisive, it's, it is. divisive or controversial yeah. ones, and yet it made the most money of all of them.
0: Yeah, and it won him a second Oscar. It did. It's two two-time Oscar winner Quentin Tarantino, and then he's now he's getting into a little bit of a revisionist history kind of thing, all the way with like the Kill Bill movies and Death Proof. You know, that was we're we're exploring genres. We're getting really pulpy. And then he comes back with these, what I like to consider to be like his revisionist history movies. Obviously, *Inglorious Bastards ends a lot differently than the way life ended in, in in the real world or the way that it all wound up in the real world. Django kind of turns the idea of slavery on its head and really uses sort of a almost a revenge fantasy framed in in the world of of Southern slaves. Hateful Eight doesn't necessarily fit that, but it does continue on his love of Westerns. Um, It feels like both Django and Hateful Eight is just, I love that Tarantino decided to play in the world of Westerns. Uh, Did you see, I don't don't remember, did you come with us to see the 70, 70 millimeter Hateful Eight? I feel, I, like it was, yep. I feel like it was yep. you.
1: You me in Dallas. Yeah.
0: And that was an experience. It was. That was 70 millimeter. There's a, an intermission. And that's one of those movies like, wow, you really didn't need to shoot this in 70 millimeter. We're in a cabin most of the time. Yeah. But again, the dialogue, the performances, it's just eight people in a cabin acting. Yeah. And it's great. And that brings us to now. Now, he did do some like television directing, like he directed like an episode of CSI. He special directed, uh, I believe, the car, one of the car portions of Sin City. But that brings us to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I wanted to wrap this up about Tarantino, David, because he is one of the few directors now who can put butts in the seats because it's a Quentin Tarantino film. And you don't get that like, as much anymore, you know? Um, you certainly don't get that in the age of superheroes, in the age of Disney, in the age of stuff like that. You, you don't get a mainstream appeal for a, a, a filmmaker like this. It's very rare. Maybe you're... Who would you say is on the list? Spielberg, obviously. Well, I think... I
1: think- you there's a combination here, and and Spielberg's even borderline on this, not because How of quality, <laughs> but because he cranks out a movie pretty much one a year. Yeah, one or two. A he year. averages basically one or two a year. Whereas you think of like Nolan, James Cameron, Scorsese, sure, um, and Tarantino, they're all all four of those come to mind for me because it's like one every like 3 or 4 years. Score says he picked up his pace a little bit but now he slowed down again. Right. Um but like all f- all four of those are very deliberate in what they do and they're usually like massive projects whether it be because technically what they're doing or you know some other aspects and that. So um that's kind of what I think of and like you said there's only a handful of directors where if you say it like what, what movies are you interested Oh, I'm interested in the next Tarantino film. Right. Like, I'm interested in the next Spielberg film or the next Christopher Nolan. Right. Like, there's not a lot of directors that that's when they do a movie, that's the first thing that you say. Regardless. Like usually it's an actor whatever. or it's the story and what sure. it's about. But pretty much always it's like the next Quentin Tarantino movie. And then the rest of the description.
0: Sure, absolutely. And it doesn't matter, you know? And what's funny is that in that same amount of time, so if Tarantino started in 92, he did nine movies, Spielberg did double that. Like, he's got at least 20.
1: And that's where, like, I was, you know, Spielberg still produces the type of hype of, like, what's the next Spielberg movie? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, Nolan probably has done what? I think he's done, like, six... seven seven or eight seven or eight i I don't have the list in front of me and scorsese hasn't done that many in this amount of time either so i mean that's where that's where my brain kind of goes to is those because they seem to be so overly selective in in what they do
0: right and it doesn't matter what the genre is you know that you're going to get great characters you know that you're going to get great dialogue you're probably going to get some violence You're going to get non-linear storytelling. You're going to get flashbacks. You're going to get flash forwards. In this movie, there are flashbacks inside of flashbacks, inside of flashbacks, which I I really enjoyed. Um, But would you, again, we kind of answered this already, but Inglourious Bastards is mine. It's also yours in terms of favorite Tarantino movie, right? Um, I wouldn't say any of them are bad. I wouldn't say any of them are even okay. Like, Death Proof is the closest one to Okay. Um, and I also think, let me ask you a question, because since you're a statistician or whatever, these movies do pretty well for what they are, but they're not blockbusters. Do you think that that's irregular? Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I think obviously um, being rated R and, and, again, well into the R's, there's usually plenty of oh yes F-bombs. There's plenty of... Oddly uh, enough, I'm trying, I'm trying to watch my language <laughs> yeah, yeah. more and more
0: yeah. with certain amounts of success, but I am particularly watching it on the Tarantino episode <laughs> of all episodes. But uh, I think those are some combinations. I also
1: think he doesn't necessarily go to like the obvious stories or most attractive stories to grab like a mass audience. Sure. Um, obviously, he loves Westerns. Uh, mm-hmm. He also loves... War not movies. well, like period pieces, like sure, not shooting in today's. That's time. a really good
0: point. Not a single one, with maybe the exception of pulp fiction and reservoir dogs, really feel like there's. I guess, eh, I mean, kind of. He certainly hasn't been playing in the modern world for the past decade, sure,
1: the last <laughs> decade. But even you go to like Jackie Brown, is right, is a it feels fi- pulp fiction is set in 94. Is set in 94.
0: Right. Jackie Brown feels like it's set in the 90s. Those are all 90s set movies. Sure. Kill Bill same thing feels like it's set in the mid 2000s but but like you said he's been way more interested in playing with history yeah. in the past decade, which I find to be really interesting. It is. Um especially because the movies are so damn good too. Mm-hmm. Now there are talks he's always said he's threatened that that there are this is going to he's only going to do 10 films. So word is on the street. This is the second to last one. Do you think he'll hold to that? He's rumored to be doing a Star Trek one. I, I don't think so. I
1: mean, because here, here's the thing and we'll get into this more. You know, one of the things that's obvious in this film specifically. Sure. Is just his love of history and the film industry and all of that. And to me, if this is your love and your you know, your passion, you're not going to just all of a sudden stop doing it if no. you're still able to. Um, again, I think he's not going to suddenly start cranking out films, but I, I could see him getting that, you know, proverbial itch. He's only 56, so it's not like he's sure old and, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, maybe he just wants to, you know, retire and enjoy right. himself. He's been doing like... A movie every three years it's not like he's slammed and overworked and sure tired of the grind that kind of thing so I think he you know it wouldn't surprise me if after he makes his 10th he doesn't do another one for six years for or something while. like that sure and resurfaces that and he's not going to do just a film just to do a film and I think that's the other thing that makes Tarantino different is that he pretty much writes Has he written every single one of his movies? So he writes every single one of his films. So it's not like someone's coming to him and pitching him a movie. Right. Like he thinks up what he wants his next film to be writes it and then goes and pitches it's his, it to the studio. It's,
0: he's one of the few directors that that does that. And, you know, I, I can see him stepping away because Tarantino, remember Tarantino's part of a he's he grew up as he's the video store generation. You know, he grew up working in a video store. He grew up, you know, doing that stuff. He's just as much of a guy who loves watching movies and consuming them as making them, right? And he's he helped curate for the new Beverly Theater in, in California now. He does a lot of stuff and I could see him pivoting to something like that, to being more of a personality in film rather than being a film director or creator. I could also see what you, you know, suggested happening where he <laughs> I, I finally also, makes another movie.
1: I also, and we don't want to go down this this no. rabbit hole, but I also think some of this may have come from his name getting pulled in right or wrong into a lot of the you know the Me Too stuff, the oh, uh, abuse every time allegations. Obviously, his connection with Weinstein was was pr- fairly close. Sure, you know the beginning of his career, and sure. uh, this is the first film I think that hasn't been attached to Weinstein Company,
0: fully underneath Sony. Yeah. otherwise he's doing Miramax and Weinstein Company before this. Yeah,
1: and so I think you know those were all all factors to it too. Maybe um, that I think maybe it's like. He was already down the line with this film when all that stuff started surfacing. Sure. So maybe it's, you know, taking a step back, maybe letting some of that, you know, continue to pass away and, and move on.
0: Maybe. He's, he's always been a topic of controversy. He's I mean, you know, he's been a topic of controversy for the violence in his movies. There was a, he was interviewed a while back. I think it was after Sandy Hook about the gun violence in his movies, which he didn't react to very well. He, even now, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but even now there have been some people with, in my opinion, really bad takes about the disp- depiction of Sharon Tate in this movie. Mm-hmm. Really, really surface level, just bad film watching um, that he didn't exactly react well to. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's always k- kind of, welcomed that controversy and been sort of a controversy magnet. But I do obviously want to talk about Once Upon a Time Time in Hollywood. And uh, it's all non-spoiler talk right now. We'll get into spoilers in a little bit. But for those of you who don't know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is set in late 60s Los Angeles. And it essentially follows a, a, a handful of people. It follows Rick Dalton who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, his best friend-slash-stunt Double Cliff Booth, and actress Sharon Tate. Now, Sharon Tate's the only one who's based on a real person, the actual Sharon Tate. It's another one of these sort of peek-back-into-history movies, a little bit of revisionist history involved here, Um, kind of fits into that general theme with Glorious Bastards and Django Unchained, where he takes a look back at history, puts his spin on it, Um, And there are a lot of real aspects that are incorporated in this movie, you know, such as all of the locations, obviously. There are a number of famous actors actors and actresses that are portrayed in this movie, like Sharon Tate, like Roman Polanski, like Steve McQueen. You know, there's a number of different cameos as well, and it also... You know, there's, and a lot of people don't know this. I'm actually really curious as to see how people react if they're not as informed with what was going on in Los Angeles in the late '60s with the Manson family and that whole cult and Charles Manson running around with his hippie cult of you know psycho um, young men and women. It's absolutely fascinating. So, so let's get into it, man. Let's talk about non-spoilers for. Once upon a time in Hollywood. This is, I, in my opinion, and again, this is all we ever talk about is our opinion. You know, he's he's shown his passions in his previous movies, where Inglorious Bastards is built off of his love of of war movies, of men on a mission movies. Django, obviously, uh, Hateful Eight, built off of his love of of uh, westerns. To me, though, this is one of the like most what's the word I'm looking for? Like a peer. It peers into Tarantino's soul a little bit. And it really is a love letter, what I feel, to the things that shaped who he is, to that era of Hollywood, that golden age that's still romanticized, Uh, to things like Westerns on TV, Spaghetti Westerns, uh, Sharon Tate, obviously, The Wrecking Crew, some Dean Martin stuff, that whole era. It is so lovingly created here, and there's so much time spent talking about these television westerns that I, it reminded me a lot of my dad. If I'm being honest with you, I'm like I, I uh, would love to see this movie with my dad and get his thoughts on this as well. But you know, what did you did you, did you see a lot of that as well? What did you find out? You know, what did you like about the movie? I, I really liked how painstakingly it went to reproduce 1969 Los Angeles of, amongst other things
1: yeah I think one of the things for me that I really enjoyed was it really f- one of the things when you get period pieces or, or movies that are done in a specific time period is that a lot of times like the movie feels like intentional in that way it doesn't feel natural the the time frame that we're in or sure. it feels like we're in another world. Whereas this felt like a current film, just things were dated. I don't know. It was hard to describe the way that it was shot and the way that it looked and how beautiful it was. Like you felt like you recognized where they were driving around in LA. Just some of the buildings were different and the clothes people were wearing were different in that. So uh, to me, I really enjoyed that from the standpoint of like, it felt natural from that standpoint. Like um, sometimes like they're over the top in the outfits and things like that. And I wasn't really focusing on that to to some point in what we watched um, mm-hmm. throughout the film. It didn't come up too. it wasn't too heavy handed in making sure you knew, hey, this is the 60s. Right. But but it was the, enough. But it was enough. And you got some of those iconic scenes of, um, you know, there's one point in the movie and this isn't a spoiler where you see. Kind of the transition from day to night, yeah. and all the I was lights. About the same thing. All the lights are turning on at these iconic places that uh-huh. go the back neon. to them. But they didn't. They didn't make too much. At least I didn't feel like it when I saw it. Like they didn't make too much of an effort to make them look like they were brand new. Like right. in the '60s. Like they seemed kind of aged. Like maybe past what they actually would have looked like sure. in the '60s. But so, like, what I was getting at is, it feel it felt like you could drive around and still see this this world sure and some parts showing. you can some exactly parts.
0: some of the theaters like the cinerama that they show like some things you can my f- so in what you were just saying another movie that i think of and this is not a good movie to bring up but it's dark phoenix dark phoenix was set allegedly set in the early 90s mm-hmm. and how could you tell like they made no effort there to tell us where we are when we are here the time frame and the location are as much a character as anything else. 1969, Los Angeles. He really goes in painstaking detail to make you feel like you are there to show the day to night transition is one of my favorites because we've spent all day living in a world of Hollywood during the day, but no, look, it, it's different at night. It's almost a different world with the neon popping up and when, oh maybe things get a little more, maybe a little more dangerous. You know, and I love that. I loved it.
1: And I think even in like some of the choices they make, like the vehicles that are in the film that are highlighted, like they're not like some like overly iconic, like 60s car. Like it's not like he's driving a, you know, a 60s Mustang or things like that, where it's like everybody instantly associates with that and and maybe a car car lover would identify a little bit earlier but you know I enjoy cars and that and would recognize a lot of 60s sure. models and that one didn't immediately jump out to me like oh that's a 60s car like you could have told me that was like a 74 and I probably would have believed it or that right. kind of thing and so like just his decisions to kind of stick in the not make it feel like this is all about being the 60s like it didn't mm-hmm. it wasn't like distracting like I feel like sometimes it can be absolutely when those period movies are made now it's
0: very natural I mean bringing up the cars is an excellent point because there are essentially three cars highlighted in this movie and this is a weird thing to focus on <laughs> but you have Rick Dalton's car which is like a convertible like Cadillac something like that kind of perfect fit for an aging star in Rick Dalton you have Cliff Booth's car which is a piece of shit which mm-hmm. is perfect for the character of Cliff Booth and then you have and Sharon Tate driving around in their like foreign sporty convertible mm-hmm. which is perfect for the young up and coming couple like it they are extensions of their character it's so it's so good mm-hmm. when people put the thought into that you sure. know and talking about characters i mean one of my favorite parts about this movie i leaned over to you when this movie was over and i said you know in a in a in a world where Disney's dominating. I said this before in a world where it's all about superheroes and it's about the next story and the next plot and the next villain. There is something just so good about watching really talented movie stars act their asses off as really good characters with really good dialogue. And I can sp- I could spend hours in this world. I could watch hungover Leonardo DiCaprio talk with an eight-year-old co-star for literally... Ju- if that was the movie, I'd watch that movie. I could watch, I could watch Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth all day long, just being cool as hell. Sure. Um, and the way that they work sh- with Sharon Tate, Sharon Tate certainly, and there's been conversation about this, she doesn't have the dialogue mm-hmm. that, that uh, DiCaprio or Pitt have, but she has a presence mm-hmm. living her life. In, in this world that I found to be really touching and really sweet and a really kind of perfect juxtaposition between Rick Dalton, who's kind of a mess, Cliff Booth, who's kind of this questionable character maybe, mm-hmm. and then the kind of, I don't know, innocence per se of Sharon Tate, especially if you know the story of Sharon Tate, yeah. that I found to be really good.
1: Yeah, I think from a performance standpoint, pretty much in line with everything that you were talking about i think what sharon tate's character does is because you know the history and the story and if you don't you know this isn't a this isn't a spoiler this is talking about history um right sharon tate is one of many that was murdered by the manson family but Mm -hmm. it's probably the most iconic of murders there was five of them killed that night the most famous
0: Um, the tate the tate massacre is one of them
1: and so knowing that context and again this is a revisionist history movie so it's not a biopic it's not a historical film uh, other than they pull out actual real things names, people, characters even some events are referenced throughout it Um, but knowing that you kind of have Tate is like the heart of the film and like you know this is all leading to a certain direction and like Even though you don't get a lot of dialogue and a lot of scenes that are like really following her, a lot of them are done with no dialogue or music over them or they're, you know, multiple shots and that kind of thing. You're kind of viewing Tate from the outside in and seeing her. Right. Um, And that's what I think is what was meant. It wasn't necessarily we don't want to highlight this character. It's that you see her innocence kind of from afar and you don't want you're you're hoping we don't end where we do, or that's kind of the tragedy, in it, knowing
0: where we're headed. Exactly, especially the way he frames the the Manson family in this movie, or or hippies in general. Yes, <laughs> we won't get into specifics, but suffice it to say, I don't think Tarantino's the largest fan of hippies or sure. flower childs or whatever. But they're they're at the edges. Even at the very beginning of the movie, there's just moments where we cut in. And it's, it's, they start creeping in to the main story mm-hmm. in, in this building, building dread, especially if you know the history. Sure. Um, I, I loved it. And I loved, needless to say, there is revisionist history at play here that is fantastic. I mean, without going into spoilers, just <laughs> awesome.
1: The ending is super memorable. And we're going to talk about it in spoilers. For but sure. It's definitely one of those... Endings that you will talk about. If you go online, lots of people are talking about the ending specifically. They're talking about the movie as a whole and the performances and and lots of things. Um, But the ending is definitely a very specific point of conversation and and with and with good reason. It's it's one of my favorite scenes from the film.
0: Uh, It's iconic. It's nothing short of iconic. Um, Now it's not perfect. Much like Tarantino's movies tend to be, it's very it's. I mean, we saw it late, but it's long as hell. It's like it two. Is. It's two hours it's all, and forty minutes. Yeah. It, it's meandering. They're, they're, this is probably one of his least violent movies. It's just a lot of conversation. It's spending time with these characters, and that's not to say that it isn't intense or emotional or fulfilling, but it's long. Yeah. Did you feel as if it could be? cut down or maybe extended and we're doing a mini series.
1: Yeah, the, well that was the thing is uh I definitely think this could have been a a mini series on HBO or something like that. You sure. could have made this into I think the perfect time for this would have been like 6 to 8 hours. Okay. That kind of thing. Okay. And I think it would have been fun to see all these characters developed even more. You could have some more time for Tate. But that was my biggest issue I think was with you know as much as we talked about how we liked the Tate character and right. in, in what she meant to the story. Mm-hmm. To me, I felt like we were kind of on a line of like, I feel like we either need more of her or less of her. Sure, like She plays an important role, but like that's one of the areas where I was like, I feel like we could cut some of this and still achieve what we're trying to achieve. Right. Or I feel like we need to dive into this more and, and cut some other areas and find a way to incorporate her more. Um, but again, It's a Tarantino movie, so you expect it to be long, and at least I do. Yeah. Um, You expect it to be a lot of talking, um, which it is. It is. Um, Just there's not – I feel like a lot of his films either – like Hateful Eight, I think, it's one that like the climax is definitely at the end. And it's a slow – burn the whole mm-hmm. way through with
0: bursts of action but in amongst it
1: yeah there's bursts of actions in and amongst it and there's a general tension throughout the film right whereas this film is southern california it's it's pretty laid back i can think of other than the climax i can think of one point of the movie where you get kind of that tense moments everything else is pretty laid back pretty southern california
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think a big part of the Sharon Tate stuff is tied into his love of the story, his desire to kind of immortalize her and give her a life that she never got to live. Sure. And so I feel as if if you are more emotionally tied to the existence of Sharon Tate, then that pays off more. Obviously, you and I weren't around in the 60s. We maybe don't have as big of an emotional connection to that event, to that history. Mm -hmm. So I I agree. Like, that's certainly a part, which is why I'm super interested to see what people feel about this movie, because if you don't know the history, maybe that dread doesn't kick in as early as it did for me. Like, the second the flower children show up, I'm like, oh, shit, I know what that is. Yes. But there are probably people our age maybe even older, maybe younger, who don't know anything about the Manson family, yeah. you know? I, and Despite I, the, the fact that Netflix has probably made like five like, series on and it. And this
1: is where I'm like, I think someone would enjoy this movie even more if you just did some light reading sure. on, especially the Tate Merge, but on the Manson family in general. Like, just read the Wikipedia page or right. something. Like, <laughs> right. And I think... It's crazy. It'll... This movie will make a whole lot more sense... And you'll appreciate kind of what Tarantino did yeah. from a revisionist history standpoint, if you know the context. It would still be great otherwise, but like knowing kind of like the true story and then right. seeing what Tarantino does with it is is a lot of fun.
0: So let's so now that, you know, obviously we, we've shared our non-spoiler thoughts with the film. I want to get into some spoilers here, but that means it's time for the popcorn rating. What's that noise? Popcorn. Uh huh. Now, if you've never listened to the popcorn diet before, we do our ratings a little bit differently. Instead of stars or thumbs up, we give a popcorn rating. We have five different levels of popcorn ratings. We have burnt popcorn, which means movie is trash don't waste your time we have stale popcorn which means it's fine if maybe you red box it or watch it for free but it's not great we have microwave popcorn which is your mileage may vary you might like this movie you not might not like this movie it's fine uh it's it's okay kind of At your own discretion you should see the movie we have movie theater popcorn which is you should probably go see this on the big screen and then we have perfect popcorn which is go out and see this movie immediately on the biggest screen that you can and if ever we need sort of a half of rating we just throw a soda onto any one of those so i'll I'll start with mine i am going to give this a movie theater popcorn and a coke if only because it is long and it is one of the more meandering tarantino movies out there Um, But it's still Tarantino. It's still world-class acting. It's still Brad Pitt being cool as hell. It's still Leonardo DiCaprio putting an amazing performance on the screen. Some of of the last vestiges of movie star, right? Self-made movie star. I didn't show up in a superhero movie. I didn't show up on a Netflix drama. Like, these are movie stars who make movies so infrequently that when they show up, it means something, and there's power behind that. It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully acted. It's funny. It's dramatic. It's It does have moments of violence. Um, it's kind of all of the best and the worst of Tarantino in that it's kind of Tarantino getting to do whatever he wants, and what's really cool is that I know there's a bunch of stuff cut out of this movie too. I hope to see more of it because I would love to continue living in this world and living with these characters but again, two hours, 40 minutes. It's a long movie for a lot of talking. I get it. So it's not quite perfect popcorn for me, but it is movie theater popcorn and a Coke. If you like Tarantino, you should definitely see it. David, what do you think?
1: I'm actually going with the exact same rating. Hey. Um, Four for popcorns and a, and a soda. It's it's a movie theater movie. You need to go and see it there. It's not something to wait to, to go see it on on streaming obviously if that's the only way that you end up seeing it still see it regardless but um i would advise against seeing it late at night (laughs) um especially if you're not a night owl but uh it's tough because it's tough i had that moment in the middle where it was like man we're only like halfway through i need to i need to sit up here my (laughs) ears were
0: watering a bit i saw you lean forward a couple times yeah yeah
1: so and it wasn't that i wasn't enjoying it it's just it's it's a lot of talking and not a ton of action. But uh, so if, if you don't like that, then I could see you not enjoying this right. as much. But I, I still don't think you can sit through this and not appreciate how well done it is, the performances, how beautifully shot it is. And it's just a it's a great movie.
0: Yeah, it's it, it, a lot of talking and not a lot of action might seem like damning praise, but only if it's like a like a Michael Bay movie. Right. For this movie, the talking is a plus stuff. And even the action that does show up is A plus stuff. So I definitely we need to get into some spoilers. But before we do, we gotta take a quick little ad break. What's up, good movie buddies? Before we continue with spoilers, I wanna remind everybody that you can get regular episodes of this podcast delivered to you for free just by hitting the subscribe button or following wherever you're listening from. We really appreciate you taking just a second to hit that button. Give us a rating, write us a review, share The Popcorn Diet with any of your own good movie buddies. We also want to remind you to check us out on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thepopcorndiet and consider becoming a patron of the podcast. By giving a few dollars to the podcast, not only are you going to help us improve, but you'll get early access to episodes. You'll get exclusive patron-only content like our franchise refills and more. You can find that at patreon.com slash thepopcorndiet. Of course, we don't Want you to forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, at The Popcorn Diet. And last, but certainly not least, you can find all of our latest regular episodes, articles, reviews, and more on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. David, some crazy stuff happens in this movie, and I don't know if we want to start with it immediately or if we just want to lead up to it with our favorite scenes. Let's do that. Let's lead up to it a little bit. So I mean, basically, what we're doing is we're talking spoilers now, our favorite bits in the movie, and there's a lot of them. Essentially, this movie, the way that I picture it is for a great majority of this movie, we're following three characters. We're following Rick Dalton as he struggles with a terrible hangover and um, working on the set as a bad guy for a new Western television show. We follow Cliff Booth as he's running odd jobs and errands and then runs afoul of the Manson family compound. And then we get Sharon Tate kind of just, again, enjoying her day. There's really nothing dramatic that happens in Sharon Tate's day. Rather than she gets to go watch herself be in The Wrecking Crew, which is a real movie she was in with Dean Martin, and enjoy the experience of people around her watching the movie. Um, amongst the way, along, along the way, there are a lot of shots of feet Uh, because that's Tarantino for you. No no kink-shaming here. Tarantino loves his feet, and boy, howdy, does he make it known. But that's really the meat of the middle part of the movie. The first part of the movie is kind of introducing us to everybody, and then the last part of the last, like, third of the movie is, like, the night of the Manson family murders and what happens there. But I just love living with these characters. I think one of my favorite parts of the movie is... Everything Rick Dalton related his conversation with the little girl who's method acting and him acting on set. Like I loved watch watching Leonardo DiCaprio act like a hungover Rick Dalton act like Caleb Dakota or whoever he was. Like that's three. We're we're three levels deep in inception acting. We're inception acting. And that's awesome. I loved all that shit. Um, I loved everything, but that was some of my favorite stuff. What about you? What, what's some of your favorite stuff in this movie?
1: As I was thinking about it, basically anytime Brad Pitt's driving, um, is, I enjoyed a lot just seeing one, you get the, the awesome visuals throughout the city and just enjoying kind of the world that we're in. Um, but Brad Pitt is just like, is about as cool as you can be in this film. Right. Um, and it's just fun to follow him throughout. Um,
0: He's also, so cool. He's so and cool. And I think
1: that comes to head. That is most the, the best part of that. There's a number of really good Brad Pitt moments in this movie. But um, I really like the, the Spawn Ranch mm-hmm. whole portion of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, That's
0: all historical. Spawn Ranch was this old Hollywood ranch yep. that the Manson family was allowed to hang out on because the old man who lived it basically got to bang his way through all of the women of the Manson family. That's true. That actually happened. Yep. And he winds up there.
1: Yep. And he winds up there um, because he drops the girl who hitchhikes Uh and and brings her there. Um, But that was one of those things where the movie kind of picked up a little bit. You got some of the tension building up of what's going on here. Um, But even with all the tension in that, like that you're feeling as an observer, like Brad Pitt's character is still about as cool as it. As he can be. As he
0: can possibly be. Like, oh, you thought Brad Pitt was cool in Ocean's Eleven. He is. You thought he was cool in Inglourious Bastards. He is. But this is like the ultimate... Brad Pitt cool. This is I'm as cool as I was in Ocean's Eleven and I can beat the sh- the, the hell out of you. Look, see, I'm trying to watch my language uh, like I can in Inglorious Bastards. It's like the ultimate cool guy.
1: Well, and the thing is, in this film, I feel like it's where Brad Pitt is now. Like Ocean's Eleven was like young Brad Pitt cool, where it's more like the flashy, like well-dressed, all that kind of stuff. And now I feel like we're into like however old Brad Pitt is, 50 or whatever. Yeah. Um but, like, kind of that I don't give a crap anywhere. I'm wearing moccasins. I'm wearing Hawaiian shirts. You know, but I can I can still go toe-to-toe with young Bruce Lee and all that kind of stuff. Oh,
0: my God. The Bruce Lee fight is so good. It's a flashback within a flashback because Cliff gets sent. Because Cliff is just – he's buddies with Rick Dalton, but he's also his handyman, his driver, all this kind of stuff. So he sends him to go fix his antenna on the on the roof. And while he's doing that, he thinks about something Cliff said. And then Cliff says, "Eh, yeah, you, you can't be a stunt man on this show because the stunt coordinator is a guy who you have an issue with in the past, which he then flashbacks to. And the whole reason he has an issue with him is because through another flashback, it's shown that he maybe killed his wife. <laughs> he fights Bruce Lee, throws Bruce Lee into the side of a car, which is then revealed to be Kurt Russell, who is the stunt coordinator, his wife. Played by Zoe Bell, his his her car, and it's just, it's hilarious. It's so funny and just good. It's just good. It's good to watch, you know.
1: Yeah, it it was just a lot of fun, but probably my favorite scene um, th- my favorite Leo scene would be like the self-talk in the trailer
0: he's just freaking out like oh my line, line stupid beep, 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 freaking out yeah
1: and you see part of this in the trailer so if if you're wanting to listen to spoilers and and you haven't seen it yet you've seen part of this in the trailer yeah um, <laughs> but it's just a it's just a really funny scene um, there in the middle of this and and the the fun part is is I'm sure this happens all the time because he goes out there and he just crushes it, right? Um, which is really right feels after that triumphant, scene. like yes. it's
0: like, yeah, man, you did you, it. And you all it is got is yourself acting. together, yeah. <laughs> like he's just, it's like I'm gonna act the shit out of this scene. There, I, I blew it, and uh, and it's just tri- triumphant in seeing him nail it. Yep. And then he gets the and then he's so. I love how insecure he is. Mm-hmm. Because a little girl telling them that's the best acting I've ever seen, he starts crying. Yeah. It's like, it's what I need. Um, we got to talk about the ending. The ending, absolutely. They go, and this is where I think it could be a miniseries because there's a brief chunk in a movie where they go over to Italy and film some spaghetti westerns. Yeah. It's literally just recapped with the posters. Yeah. We could have got two more hours of just that. Sure. But they come home dalton and and, uh uh, rick dalton and cliff booth they're gonna go their ways but before they do we're gonna spend one night getting absolutely drunk
1: and he's got a wife now too. he's
0: got a wife rick dalton's now married to an italian woman who's brought home as well um and there's a lot of stuff happening and and it's so good at building the tension because if you know the history that is the night of the manson family murders yeah that is the night where sharon tate her hairdresser slash boy on the side kind of and their friends were and five people brutally stabbed dozens and dozens of times by these Manson family people um, and things start getting weird like Brad Pitt smokes an acid lace cigarette and takes his dog for a walk. The Manson family shows up, drunk ass Rick Dalton starts going down and yelling at him. And then that's when things change. And they're like, we're not going to go to Sharon Tate's house. We're going to go to Rick Dalton's house. We're going to kill them because they taught us violence and blah, 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 blah. And we're like, wait a minute. That's not quite how history went. And then Rick is, is drunk, listening to headphones in the pool. His wife's asleep. Brad Pitt shows back up at home. He's tripping balls Yeah, trying to feed his dog. And then the Manson family bursts in. Yeah. It's so good. And then shit goes bananas.
1: Well, and because you're sitting there the whole time thinking like, all right, how tripped out is Brad Pitt here? Like, because we know, we know, because we've already seen, like, if Brad Pitt is not tripping, he, he rocks these three. Like, Immediately. He, yeah, he absolutely. Sh- he
0: almost... Um, he, he came to a draw with bruce lee
1: (laughs) yeah he came we'll call it a draw we'll call it a draw but regardless we know he's more than capable of taking out two girl hippies with knives and we
0: saw him beat the shit out of the one guy at the spawn ranch before. absolutely amazing
1: but you're you're slightly doubting it one because this is we're we're into a period well all of this is but we're In Uncharted territory and we that this isn't part of the actual story, so we don't know. We don't know. And we know he's revising it, so we don't know what's actually going to happen Even if we
0: looked up spoilers on the internet, we don't know.
1: Yes, which is fantastic. Everybody, Rick...
0: As a pause.
1: As a pause, Rick's spoilers backfired on him. As you know, he and I debate all the time over whether you should spoil the movie for yourself before. And Rick tried to do it this time and read... Read the full Wikipedia page prior to going in. Which is
0: usually accurate after a premiere. Somebody updates Wikipedia with the full entry.
1: And yet you were fooled. And it was wrong. It was wrong.
0: So let's, I'll tell you how it was wrong. But let's finish talking about the end. Because Pitt's Pitt's freaking out. They even quote from the tape murders. Like he says, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. And he's like, nah, that's not it. That's what the guy said. Yeah. The yep. same guy texts all those people were real people. yep
1: um, so you're you're sitting there doubting, but we've had this whole relationship with the dog and and uh, and with Cliff the entire film and so obviously he comes in, bites the guy's arm at that point, you know, all right everybody's making it out. Okay. Yep, we're, like, we're in, we're in it now. We're, we're about to beat the crap out of three hippies. Yes. And that's exactly what you get. It's
0: fucking insane. With, and I, and I had to drop it because it is delightful
1: with, with the most, I don't know if I'd call it the most satisfying part, but the most hilarious part <laughs> being the end when Leo pulls out the, the
0: flame, the thrower. flame
1: thrower from, <laughs> from the film that we see multiple times throughout the movie. Oh and it's so
0: satisfying
1: it's it's hilarious and the
0: whole time they're just like they don't even they're just like these weirdos these damn hippies yeah <laughs> the whole time he says something at the end like is everything okay and he's like well the hippies aren't okay <laughs> yeah
1: this the casual conversation uh the uh the, side piece of sharon tate yeah and uh and leo have outside of the gate yeah that's as emile they talk hirsch there. i know i which, don't know
0: how to pronounce the guys the character's name it's uh it's uh j it's sebring or sebring i don't know but
1: which Emil hirsch is almost re- unrecognizable in this it, it, yeah, like, I, yeah. I, I kept i'm like oh i know Emil hirsch is in this and i kept looking for him and i didn't realize till the him. end i'm like
0: i guess that's him but it is it is so satisfying to watch and again, it's on a smaller level, but it's very similar to Inglorious Bastards in Django, where Tarantino takes the evil of that time and just. It's almost. Takes cathartic. a flamethrower? Just literally <laughs> takes a flamethrower to him. In Inglorious Bastards, they're blowing up Hitler. They're shooting up his face. It's cathartic. In Django, it's Django killing literally everybody. In the. Uh, candy Candyland compound Mm -hmm. and in this it's the Manson family getting what they deserve but not only that it's everybody who died being able to continue on living their lives Mm -hmm. and it's really kind of poetic and it's really kind of sweet in in a weird Tarantino kind of way because the movie ends with with um with DiCaprio going and meeting Sharon Tate and talking with the people who in real life We're dead by then. We're murdered by these psychos, which is sad, you know, obviously. And it's kind of bittersweet, but it's also like that's that's the gift that I can give to these people whose lives were taken to Sharon Tate, who was uh, 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 an an amazing talent taken too soon. Pregnant Sharon Tate, you know, which which we don't mention. Um, But I will say in the Wikipedia, it was very similar Um, in the Wikipedia. It had said, and it has since been changed Sons of bitches, I can't even <laughs> go back and look at what they wrote, but it was originally that um, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth showed up to Sharon Tate's house and saved them, and there was a big gunfight slash kung fu fight that Bruce Lee showed up to mm-hmm. and killed all the Manson family members, and then Charlie Manson showed up and was like, oh, what happened? This isn't the plan, and then is immediately killed, mm-hmm. so I'm like, i buy that, because that sounds like ben, some yeah. Inglorious bastard stuff, right? But also, Brad Pitt dies in that version of that I read in the in the uh, false version that I read, and I was like waiting for all of this to happen. I was like, okay, when's Bruce Lee gonna show up again? And then Brad Pitt gets stabbed, and I'm like, oh, okay. But he gets stabbed in the hip, so I'm like, that's not deadly. And it turns out that it's completely different, similar but different, similar enough to get me rattled, but different or different enough to get me rattled, but similar enough to where I still Uh, It it kept the beats very, very close, which, again, makes me question the source of whoever wrote this. Um, But, yeah, man, I just... Watching these these young psycho uh, Manson family people get absolutely brutalized, and it is brutal. And watching full-grown Brad Pitt just, like, collapse somebody's face into a fireplace banister... It sounds yeah. terrible, but boy, is it great to watch. Yeah. And and when he walks out with that flamethrower, <laughs> you can't help but laugh. It's so funny and so crazy in what he does. Um, so let's wrap this up, man, because you asked me a question walking out of the theater, which is, does it get any nominations? I don't know. I don't know if this is... I mean, we've had some independent movies come out that could get momentum, like The Farewell just came out. There's been some others. Of Us obviously came out. This... I I know that when I say this feels like lesser Tarantino, that sounds a lot harsher than I mean it, but this just doesn't seem on the level of Oscar Tarantino, in terms of writing at least.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to win for writing. Like, this isn't, from a from a script standpoint, this doesn't feel as fantastic as pretty much everything he does is. I mean, like, sure. Pulp Fiction, it's like, quote, 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 you know, every every line seems to be something that you can quote. And, right. Um, same with even, even Hateful Eight being one of the ones that a lot of people liked a lot less. Like, the dialogue is a whole lot more... Uh-huh there's some Um,
0: quotes that I still remember from that movie yeah this one a little bit less so
1: yeah a little bit less so um I feel like this film is a lot heavier and maybe you know having Brad Pitt and Leo as as the main two but it feels like there's a whole lot more like physicality to this film than a lot of his other ones like where like he could have written lines there but like we focus on like the physical aspect of it. Like when you talked about, like when the scene, like we spend a lot of time on Leo's face, like gradually starting to cry after the girl tells him that was the most, you know, the greatest acting performance I've ever seen. (laughs) Like, like we spend a lot of time on some of the, there's not words happening, like the physical aspect of it, even like watching Brad Pitt make himself mac and cheese and feed his dog. Like there's not a whole lot of conversation in a lot of that. And so like, I feel like that's one of the things that's different than uh, a lot of his films. There's not many times in his other films where there's not someone talking. Right. Um, Exactly. And this, there's a
0: lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of what's the word I'm looking for. There is a lot of atmosphere. Because even even like you have the ranch scene. There's a lot of non-dialogue in the ranch scene.
1: You have like eight minutes throughout this whole movie. You probably have at least fifteen minutes of Brad Pitt driving in his car, which is and he's not saying anything because no one's in the car with him.
0: There's a couple of shots of driving in the cars where it's the traditional Tarantino shot behind the driver, but it really makes you feel what it's like to drive through the Hollywood Hills too. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I do think DiCaprio is amazing in this. I don't know if he'll get a nomination because apparently the Academy needs him to like literally nearly kill himself to give him recognition. But Hollywood also loves itself. It does. And this is a love letter to Hollywood. So it's not inconceivable to see this get some love for picture, maybe DiCaprio, maybe some some of the technical categories like cinematography, production design, stuff like that. I don't think Robbie does enough to get recognition although she's phenomenal sure but i i say that understanding how the academy has been working i think it also
1: depends on like we we haven't seen the rest of the field sure last year we had films that we thought would be shoe in oscar contenders that ended up being terrible Mary queen
0: of scots we had a lot of stuff
1: but i think you know if if you picked out categories in addition to the technical categories i think both Brad Pitt and Leo could get nominated depending on how those categories shake out. Both sure. of them both of them did well enough to warrant being nominated, sure. in my opinion. Um writing, I don't know if it's there. I mean, again, it kind of depends on the category. If they're desperate for that that last nomination. It's ri- an maybe original
0: it, screenplay. It's not always an easy thing to find.
1: Exactly. Um director, again, I think it's you know, like if you go back to last year, we had good directors, not get nominated because it was so loaded so Mm -hmm. um i could see him being left off because it's not necessarily a super memorable directing performance sure from that standpoint but you know and best picture it just depends if they're going to nominate the full field or not like it i i think it will end up being one of the top 10 best pictures of this year it certainly could but will it get nominated as such? Will they even nominate 10? Right. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and it, because of the way that the voting works on, on a lot of this too, it just depends where it kind of sits for how Hollywood reacts to it. Like you said, Hollywood loves itself, but there's some things in here that are slightly controversial and there's some background to this that is slightly controversial. Sure. So it just depends where it falls in the people that are voting. His,
0: um, his three Best Picture nominees were Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards and Django. So, like I said, I don't think this is on that level, but there are some extracurriculars. There are some things that we don't know about that uh, that could come into play. Um, you know, I would love it. I would love in three, four months if we're doing a uh, Oscar primer on this. I absolutely would. But, but yeah, man, I, I love this movie. It, it is an absolute blast. It, it's definitely a unique movie to talk about, and will generate a lot of think pieces. But I'm glad you and I saw it, even if we saw it late. Um, Before we put the bow on it, I want to remind everybody uh, that you can get The Popcorn Diet delivered to you for free. Just hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Write us a review, give us a rating, share us with your friends. Also, don't forget to check us out on patreon.com slash diet you could if if you if you're not a patron you could have gotten this episode earlier you could have gotten this episode during the weekend um so think about that (laughs) if you want early access to podcasts if you want access to some of the patron only content check us out patreon.com slash the popcorn diet of course don't forget that you can follow us on twitter on instagram on facebook at the popcorn diet and last but certainly not least You can find all of our latest regular episodes, all of our recent articles, reviews, and more on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. But for the Canadian machine, Mr. David Melhorn, I am your very best good movie buddy, Rick Williamson, and we'll see you next time with another good movie on the popcorn diet. Adios.